Hello, and welcome to ADHD Essentials, part of the ADHD Rewired Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brendan Mahan. I'm a former teacher and mental health clinician turned ADHD coach, trainer, and consultant. I can be reached at brendan at adhdessentials.com. Here at ADHD Essentials, we help families develop the skills and knowledge needed to better manage attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? Just a quick heads up before we jump into the episode. Depending on their age and your comfort level, this might not be an episode you want to listen to with your kids. But it probably is one that you want to listen to with your spouse, even if you want to preview it first. Why, you ask? Because today's episode is about ADHD and sex. I think it could spark some important thought and conversations for adults, and while we keep things appropriate and as close to PG-rated as we possibly can with a topic like this, your 8-year-old probably isn't going to dig it or even understand it. So, let's keep this one for the adults in the room. Speaking of adults, my buddy Eric Tivers of ADHD Rewired is holding a registration event for his adult ADHD coaching and accountability groups. Don't worry, they're appropriate. This registration event takes place on Thursday, November 21st at 11 a.m. Central Time. In it, you will learn how his groups work, and whether they're a good fit for you. I've been through them. Once as an attendee, I was part of the second or third iteration, and once as support staff in and around the teens. As both support staff and an attendee, he's put together an impressive program that's worth checking out. The event is by invitation only, so go to ADHDrewired.com and click the big purple button. Again, the registration event is at 11 a.m. Central, Thursday, November 21st. And to sign up for this registration event, all you have to do is go to ADHD Rewired, click the big purple button, and follow the directions from there. Check out the link in the show notes. Of course, it goes without saying, another big thank you to Jeffrey Gordon of Ideal Video Strategies, who did the heavy lifting on editing this episode. You can learn more about his work at Ideal Video Strategies. and you can keep your eyes peeled for a project he and I are going to be teaming up on this winter. And of course, there's that big news, that I'm doing a live episode of this podcast at the Commonwealth Learning Center in Needham, Massachusetts, on November 21st from 7 to 9 p.m. The first half of the evening will feature me interviewing my friend Lolly Weeks of Fast Brain Coaching about her journey from ADHD mom to ADHD coach. And the second half will feature Lolly and I doing a live Q&A for those in attendance. Email info at comlearn.com to RSVP. Unsurprisingly, all of those links are in the show notes. Finally, don't forget that the best way to support this show is by sharing it with others, either online or in person. So let the folks on your Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds know that we exist, or just go wander the streets and tell everyone you see about us. And don't forget to throw up that five-star rating and review on iTunes. In fact, go do it now. Hit the pause button. We'll wait. Welcome to ADHD Essentials. Today, we're talking to Dr. Ari Tuckman. Ari is a friend of the pod and a psychologist in private practice specializing in diagnosing and treating 
children, teens, and adults with ADHD, anxiety, and depression. He's appeared on CNN, NPR, and as you may recall, this very pod. He's also an author and has written a pioneering book called ADHD After Dark that is based on a study he conducted and explores the impact of ADHD on a couple's sex life and relationship. In today's episode, Ari and I start by talking about what makes a good scientific study, both to bore your kids in case you don't want them listening to the sex episode, and also to increase our scientific literacy. From there, we discuss the things that we can do to improve our marital relationships, how having kids amplifies what's already there, especially with regard to tension, how generosity outside of the bedroom can lead to generosity inside of the bedroom, and vice versa, and lots of other things related to ADHD and sex. All right, let's get rolling. So my name is Ari Tuckman. I'm a psychologist. I'm a certified sex therapist based in the western suburbs of Philadelphia. I've written several books. Actually, I guess I've written four now. The most recent is ADHD After Dark, Better Sex Life, Better Relationship. I'm also the co-chair for the CHAD conference, and that is always a fun way to stay involved. You know, I'm doing a few things. ADHD After Dark is a book about ADHD and sex and relationships. It is. Let's start with what led you to write the book. And then I know there was a study that went along with it that the book is based on. So then we'll move into the study. So what, what brought you here? You know, there's a bunch of good books out there on ADHD and relationships. But the thing that always struck me is there wasn't enough kind of substance to what about your sex life? You know, the sort of basic idea that I had is that couples who already struggle too much by day, you know, because one partner has ADHD, can benefit all the more from the positive emotional connection that comes from having a good sex life. You know, it doesn't solve all of life's problems, but it makes it easier to feel good about each other and to work as a team on those daily struggles. So, you know, that was the idea is that as clinicians or coaches or educators or whatever, like we're missing this really powerful point of intervention that if we can get these couples to do better sexually, that will benefit their relationship overall. And incidentally, to do better sexually, you also got to work on the relationship too. So, so it's kind of like, it's a way of kind of, you know, having it all, I suppose. So I know I participated in your study cool. back when it came out and this is before I had a podcast or anything. So this study was run a while ago. Yeah. You were on Eric Tiver's ADHD Rewired, and I think the study had just came out when I heard about it. And I was like, I'll do that. Anything that's research on ADHD, I want to be a part of. So I know I filled in my version of it. What was running the study like? How is it designed? How is it implemented? What are the, the potential limitations of it? That kind of thing. I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about what makes a good study, just because I'm always trying to increase the science literacy of my audience. Yeah, no, and I think that that's important. And I think especially, well, I think ADHD and also sex both have more than their fair share of sort of nonsense, pseudoscientific, you know, garbage. So in order to write the book, I decided that I needed something of a research foundation for it. And there really was nothing on ADHD and sexuality, at least within relationships. So I put together a survey. It had, by the time you add up all the sub-questions, it had like 72 questions, which is really like, do not create a 72-page or 72-question online survey for people with short attention spans who are not getting paid. 
you know, like terrible idea. <laughs> but fortunately, it seemed to have struck a chord. People were interested and I got more than 3,000 people to fill it out. At this point, there's more than 4,000 people. But when I pulled the data for the book, it was like 3,000. And I think it, you know, it really speaks to the fact that this is a topic that has been neglected too long. So I created this survey for couples with one ADHD partner looking at all different aspects of their sex life or their relationship of treatment effort and, and all of that. And in that big data set of lots of questions and lots of respondents gave me the ability to do all sorts of really interesting analysis and come up with all sorts of information that I think we can have some faith in. You know, it's not 20 people in a survey, you know, 3,000 people times 72 questions. There's something there. Like if I'm finding it, it's probably true. Now, in terms of the question of what makes for a good survey or a bad survey, or, you know, good research, bad research, what my survey has going for it is a really high number of participants. You know, if somebody does a survey that only has 20 people, 50 people, maybe 100 people, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's valid, but maybe it's not. Um, you also need to look at who is the search, you know, who's in the research. So, you know, often college students are research subjects because they're there, right? You can offer them extra credit and they show up. But like, I don't know, like I've read, I read a journal article about, you know, like for people in relationships and, you know, what makes your relationship satisfaction. I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then I looked and it was a bunch of freaking college kids. Like what would make for a happier relationship for me at age 20 is not what makes for a happier relationship now at 49. Like my life is slightly different now at 49, right? Like <laughs> I'm not living in a dorm with a bunch of like idiot friends. So I think you need to look at who are the subjects you need to look at how many and, and where the subjects came from. You know, like the big key of course with surveys is it, is it a nationally representative sample? meaning that the people in the research look like the people in America overall, demographically, in terms of age, um, ethnicity, income, education, et cetera, et cetera. The folks that I got for my survey, it is not a nationally representative sample. But I do think what it is representative of is people who seek out information about ADHD online. So they listen to this podcast, they listen to Eric's, um, they go to Attitude Magazine, you know, other places like that. Uh, I did Jeff Copper Attention Talk Radio. He put it out. Melissa Orlov put it out. Impact ADHD put it out. So, like, the people who are getting information in these ways were the ones who shared their information. So, I'm speaking to that audience in a, you know, good faith that what they said is reliable of what's going on in their lives. So your survey, although not representative of the na a national audience, it is pretty solidly representative of the people who are listening to this podcast right now. Absolutely. Cool. That's awesome. In going through the book, it sounds, it seems like it's primarily straight couples that are right. being addressed. Is that because same-sex couples just didn't respond? Is that because you're specifically choosing to address straight couples? What is, what's that look like? That's a good question. So in the survey, I did have it open to same-sex couples, and I did get responses. Unfortunately, I just, I didn't get enough of them that I could do any real analysis, you know? So like, I don't wanna do analysis where it's, you know, 10 people on one side and 15 on the other. Like, I, I don't believe that that's gonna tell me anything. So unfortunately, in terms of the analysis, I did limit it just to heterosexual couples. 
I wish I could speak to the, you know, same sex couples. I think some of the lessons very much do apply mm-hmm. and are the same. And also some of them are different, but in an area where there's been no research, you start with the biggest, most obvious population, and then you kind of work down from there. Now you've mentioned that you now have more responses. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that the survey is still open online somewhere? It is. Awesome. Yeah. So I've kept this, I mean, you know, I just, I pay a renewal fee for it, but, but that's fine. I'm happy to do it. So it's ADHDrelationshipsexsurvey.com. I really had two hopes for the survey. One, obviously, is I wanted to get the get data out of it so that I could write a better book and speak in an informed way in interviews and presentations. But, you know, my hope also was that the process of going through the survey kind of sparks some questions, you know, that it helps you sort of reflect upon your relationship and sex life. And if your partner also takes the survey, which I encourage, then, you know, it gives it two of you a chance. So, I mean, it's probably, I guess it's been a while since you filled it out, but like my hope was that there were some questions in there that you're like, oh, huh, let me actually, let's think about that. Because I think it's easy to get kind of stuck in whatever we're doing and not be reflective about it. Yeah, I agree. And that absolutely happened to me with regard to the survey. If I filled it out now, I would be filling it out differently and in a better way. Yeah, good just because I'm under less stress and pressure than I was back then. And life has changed in general. My kids are older. All of that kind of stuff is going to affect what it looks like. And in terms of filling out the survey, I especially want to underline something real quick, which is if you are listening and you are a same sex couple, go fill out the survey because we need more data. (laughs) If you're a straight couple, go fill out the survey too, but I'm going to be less pressury on that. (laughs) Right. So let's get into the survey itself and, and the findings of it. And I guess we'll start with how is sex different for folks with ADHD versus folks who don't have ADHD, either within the couple itself or big picture sort of culturally. And you've really sort of hit on the two important points because, you know, when you talk about a couple's sex life, there's the individual aspects of, you know, what is this person's you know, their sort of inherent level of sexual interest, what sort of stuff is interesting to them, what isn't. And that is something that they would probably bring with them into any relationship. And then it's in sex, you know, mostly occurs between two people, not only, but mostly. Then there's also the interaction effect in what's happening in the sex life, what's happening in the relationship. You know, there may be someone who, just as a simple example, generally has a pretty high sex drive, except they feel really annoyed with their partner and they're not getting along and they have a whole lot less sex than they would want to have. You know, so that really kind of reflects both. In the survey data, I have aspects of both of it. So like, as one example, I asked, how often do you have sex with your partner? And then I asked the question, how often would you want to have sex? What was interesting is that, well, first of all, people were having a lot less sex than they wanted to. So there's like good room. There's some, you know, points of intervention here. There's some room for improvement. But what I found was that the folks with ADHD compared to the non-ADHD folks and, you know, always taking gender into account. So men with ADHD versus men without, women with ADHD versus women without. The folks with ADHD rated themselves as being more sexually eager across 10 out of 12 variables that I had. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I know. 
that's significant. That's a huge number. It is. It is. How did, what about the other two? They tied. So the non-ADHD folks didn't win on any of them. They just, at best, they tied. Or, you know, for some of them, like, desired sexual frequency, for the men, men with and without ADHD, was pretty close. I mean, I think the men with ADHD still rated themselves higher, but it wasn't different enough that I could say there's something significant there. But for the women, it was. You know, so for a couple of the variables, it was only on one gender, not on both. But still, like the trend is absolutely there. 10 out of 12, like that's not like a eyeball it. I think it might be right. Like definitely that's, that's a thing. And, you know, the theory that I have on why that is, is, you know, I'm going to go back to Barclay's response inhibition theory of ADHD, which is incredibly complicated and brilliant and everything else. But like simplistically speaking, Folks with ADHD tend to be more responsive to the stimuli around them or the stimuli inside their own head. Like they tend to have a harder time kind of inhibiting that response, reflecting, allowing the executive functions to do their thing, and then choosing a response. They tend to sort of like shoot first, ask questions later kind of thing. I think that that sexual stimuli, whether around them or inside their own head, they're just more responsive to them. So I think that, you know, that's why I think the folks with ADHD rated themselves as more sexually eager. Mm -hmm. And that sort of brings up sort of side, I'm sort of wandering off into the weeds for a second here, but it, but it brings up some of the, the notion that you've talked about with regard to the different levels of sexual interest. Someone might be eager to do something and someone else might be sort of willing as a, uh, but not necessarily eager. So they're like, yeah, I, you like that. I'll do it, but it's not my something that I'm super excited over. Right. And then there's sort of the, I am not eager or a willing, I don't want to do that at all. And that, that brings us into the communication area of sex and, and ADHD and relationships and couples, which I think is critical here because one of the things that you run the risk of in a marriage is just getting bored with not just sex, but sort of everything. Like we always watch Modern Family and I don't want to anymore, but I don't speak up. What were the findings there as it comes to sort of interest and eagerness and communication and those sorts of things? So this is one of those interesting things because on the one hand, this greater sexual interest can really be a good strength for the relationship because, you know, like as you're saying, like passion tends to fizzle out, especially when kids and jobs and leaky pipes and everything else kind of comes into the works. So having someone who's able to keep sex a bit more front and center in the relationship is a good thing, you know, and if the couple is getting along well and therefore they have more of that sex and generally that time together, that's, that's great. Like that is a positive for the relationship. The other side of that double-edged sword is if the couple is not getting along well, it's just yet another way that they're not getting along. It's another source of disappointment. It's another source of frustration or chasing or whatever. And this is especially going to be the case. This is going to be more the case in the couples where the guy has ADHD, I think, than when the woman has ADHD. That if the non-ADHD female partner is just feeling tired, burned out, resentful, like, why do I have so much on my plate? And then, you know, her horny husband is chasing her around all the time. Like, sorry, dude, not interested. 
you know, and then this becomes yet another thing that they're unhappy with each other about. So that's the place you don't want to be. This plays into our conversation that we had, however many episodes ago, around relationship health and sort of if the ADHD partner is taking care of themselves and doing the things to keep their ADHD managed, then the relationship tends to be happier and healthier. Yeah. And there is a correlation between a happy, healthy sex life and a happy, healthy relationship. So that's in there too. Yes. And related to all of that is also the nature of being a parent. I don't only have to take care of my ADHD stuff. I also have to take care of my kids because if I'm the dad with ADHD and I'm just disregarding the children and not taking them to hockey practice or, or to the library and not helping them with their homework and expecting my wife to do all of that, it's still sorry, Charlie, because I'm still not t- holding up my end of the bargain. All right. So you made three really awesome points here and I got data for all of them. So in the survey, I found that overall relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction overlap by about two thirds, which is, you know, totally in line with what other research says. So in other words, if you're happy in one, you're probably happy in the other. Also, because this causality goes both directions, what it means is to be happier in one, you got to also work on the other. So if you want to be happier in your sex life, you got to address the relationship. And to be happy in the relationship, you can't ignore your sex life. Mm -hmm. What was really just awesomely interesting that I found was that I asked people, how much effort did you put in on managing your or your partner's ADHD? Then I asked, how much effort do you feel your partner is putting in? And those who felt that their partner put in the most effort on managing their or their partner's ADHD had sex two-thirds more often than the folks who felt their partners put in the least effort. Wow. So 92 versus... 53, I think, times, but two-thirds more often. So aggressively manage your ADHD, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. If you want to have more sex with your partner, I should specify, you got to manage your ADHD. And, you know, I think that when, in that sort of kid's angle on this is that when it's just two adults who live together, there's not as much to do. But man, you throw kids in and like the workload multiplies and it just multiplies an imbalance in that workload if there is one. You know, when I ask people, what are the biggest barriers to a better sex life? The things they rated as the biggest barriers were ones related to either not enough time or energy for sex, because time isn't used efficiently or things are pushed into the, to the last minute or other things like that, or not, you know, not enough good feelings towards each other feeling resentful, feeling angry, stuff like that. And of course, those two are related. They're not having enough time and energy. You got to think anger feeds into that and vice versa. You know, so the folks who are not getting along well, they're not collaborating well on the daily grind are then the ones who are having a whole lot less sex. You know, so managing ADHD well is an aphrodisiac, basically. You know, like that's part of foreplay. Yeah, and you have a whole chapter in the book called Everything is Foreplay. Yeah. And you mean literally everything. It's it is. all of the things that we do are managing our emotional well-being and or our spouse's emotional well-being, our partner's emotional well-being, and that all helps to keep us in the mood. It does. It does. And, you know, the thing about, about this is, I mean, the obvious 
part here is for the partner with ADHD to kind of step up, get it together, be more helpful, kind of do the things that their partner needs for them to do, right? That's the easy, obvious part. But the equally important other half of this is for the non-ADHD partner to do their part in it, to give reminders when needed, but in a friendly way, and also to know when to say when, you know, to, to recognize uh, these are the battles I'm not going to fight and I'm going to be okay with it, you know, because none of us get everything that we want in that, you know, some of what the non-ADHD partner needs to do is manage their own anxiety about certain things, you know, like that's not how I would do it. <sighs> Deep breath. But it's okay. It's we're going to be okay, right? So that's the other half of it. And the reason why that's important is if you know one or either of you sets the goal, as soon as all this ADHD stuff doesn't happen anymore, then we're going to be happy, right? And then we're going to have a bunch of sex. Like that day will never come. And even in couples where nobody has ADHD, there's still aggravating things your partner does that you know. Hopefully, they can do it less. But there's always going to be some aspects of your partner that you wish were different, just as there's going to be aspects of yourself that you wish were different. But, you know, you don't have to make it all perfect before you can be happy. And related to that, in terms of holding up your end of the bargain, is the nature of specialization in marriages and in relationships in general. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the fact that we fall into a specialization can make us feel like our partner isn't doing enough because we're only looking at our specialization. Like I, I've had conversations with couples that I work with on occasion where they'll, t one, it's usually in the case of the kid, because usually I'm really working with the kid, but mom and dad are there too. And mom might say, well, dad never does anything to help out with our kid. And I'm like, okay, well, what does he do? Oh, well, he cooks dinner every day and he's always sweeping and mopping the kitchen floor and, <laughs> and he makes my lunch. Like, well, yeah, okay. so." He's specializing in that and you're specializing in the kid and that's okay. He's probably feeling like you're not cooking dinner enough, just like you're feeling like he's not helping with the homework enough. Right. And sometimes we have to have that reframe given to us. Absolutely. And, you know, so I got data on this too. So sort of, right. So, you know, I mentioned, I asked people how much effort they felt they were putting in and their partner. Now, interestingly, everybody rated their own effort as being a bit higher than their partner's. <laughs> Right. And it's exactly what you're describing. I just asked the narrower question of managing ADHD. If I'd asked the broader question of managing your lives, you know, it'd probably be the same. You know, part of it is that like, I know everything I do, but I don't know everything my wife does. So the stuff she does that I don't see, I don't give her credit for if I don't even think to notice it. You know what I mean? And things that are done and taken care of tend to be invisible. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like when the, all the dirty dishes are gone, nobody notices how clean the kitchen is. It's when there's crap all over the island that like that you're going to notice. Yeah. This is almost the reverse of the social media effect. We look at social media and we're comparing our blooper reel to everyone else's highlight reel. Right. And in this case, we're almost comparing our highlight reel to our spouse's blooper reel. Right. Like, oh, they forgot to clean the pots. All the other dishes are clean, but they didn't clean the pots. And it's just because they stopped to go to the bathroom and they're on their way back to the kitchen right now. Yeah, exactly. So I think it is important for any busy couple, but especially if there's some ADHD in the mix, but even if there isn't, to have those conversations. Like, what are we each doing here 
to run the, the family's life. You know, and there's lots that has to happen to keep everybody clothed and fed and happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it may be that one or the other of you is doing something the other isn't aware of. So to really have those conversations, but it might also be that there are some conversations to be had about like, well, does that need to be done? Cause like, I don't know, maybe it doesn't. Or it's a thing where it's, it's like, you know what, I'm doing this for me. Like I, my partner doesn't care about this really that much. So I cannot say I'm doing this for us if my partner doesn't care. I don't know, for me to find some great new band, let's be honest, my wife doesn't care. Like that, that is not a, a you know, check in the plus column for her. <laughs> so it doesn't mean I shouldn't research new bands, but like I shouldn't fool myself that this is like something I'm doing for us. And I think that that's important because otherwise it can be sort of a setup for resentment, which it should not be. Mm-hmm. Or it's, you know, maybe it's one of those things where it's like, look, I don't care about this. And maybe even I don't understand why my partner cares about it. But I can pitch in on it. Like I can, uh, I'll take one for the team here. Like I'll give you one on this, you know? And I think that's important too in terms of long-term happiness and certainly with parenting and other stuff like that, you know, that sometimes it's just, you just do it. And that brings us back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that often couples have different sex drives, different level of interest, different level of enthusiasm. Yeah. So... Sometimes we're navigating the extra level of enthusiasm, whichever member of the relationship has that on our own and finding our own new bands that we don't have to share with our partner necessarily. And other times the person with the lower sex drive might be pitching in to help in order to have that more intimate moment, even if they're not eager at the time, but maybe they become interested as they're pitching in. Yeah. Or it's just, I'm just doing you a favor here. I just want to spend the time together. I don't, I'm not as interested as you are, but you know, that's okay. And I think that, you know, the couples who do well, especially if there's a, you know, desire discrepancy, as we say, are the ones who can find a way to negotiate out some level of involvement, some generosity. And maybe the generosity is simply to say, you know what, I'm just not in, like, I'm not up for it but you go take care of yourself, like knock yourself out. And this is where communication is critical because if I'm not interested, but I'm helping you out, you want to make sure there's consent there. We want to make sure that it's definitely, I am willing to help you out even if I'm not eager to help you out and not that I'm helping you out despite the fact that I'm actually unwilling. Yeah. Well, and the thing about it is grudging participation at whatever level like that's never sexy. Right. You know, like that, it's just, I don't know. There's very few people who I think are really going to enjoy that. So this is where the sort of generosity and good deeds outside of bed feed in to generosity in bed and also back the other way, you know, like generosity in bed is probably rewarded the next day with, you know, some generosity in other ways. And if you're smart it is preceded by generosity before you got into bed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So again, it's that like causality goes both ways between sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. And everything being foreplay. Yeah. Up to and including the sex, because you can almost think of the sex as foreplay for... The next one. The, or, or something that's not sex. Yeah. You know, like, ah, oh, oh, how come my spouse is doing the dishes? They never do the dishes. 
oh, because 45 minutes ago, we had some fun. Yeah. And my spouse is feeling a little more generous because I was a little more generous 45 minutes ago. And that's what we're kind of shooting for here is, you know, that the couples who are connected, are happy with each other, are generous, and are just basically like good teammates. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody's pitching in, everybody's doing their part, including in, in places they don't really feel like, including on some things that they don't really understand and don't care about. But, you know, knowing that that comes back the other way. Awesome. So in terms of managing ADHD, what kind of a role did medication play in the survey? Did you have any findings around it? It's affecting sex drives one way or the other. Where does that play in? So I did ask people to rate, you know, like to rate how effective they thought treatment was. And then, you know, to what extent had they tried various different treatment options? And, you know, not surprisingly and very much in line with tons of other research, medication was found to be the most effective at managing the symptoms of ADHD. You know, those who took medication tended to do better and generally their relationship tended to do better as well. Now, what's interesting is that I asked people the question, what effect did stimulant medication have on, a sexual, on your sexual encounters? What I found was that at the level of group averages, it, it really didn't improve the sexual encounter, which is kind of, which I think is really interesting because that is not the advice that I was giving before that. You know, the idea was that maybe a little bit of medication at you know, before sex is going to help you be more focused, be more sort of in the moment, maybe a bit of delay of gratification. Most people didn't find that it really had that much of an effect either way. And then there was like a smattering of responses across the board in terms of like a little bit positive or a little bit negative, you know, or moderately or, you know, significantly, you know, positive or negative. So my advice there is if you as one person find that it's helpful to have a bit of stimulant medication on board during sex, then plan accordingly. Mm -hmm. If you're someone who finds that it, it is a negative, then plan accordingly. But that I think really where stimulant medication has a positive effect on people's sex lives is getting stuff done and doing well together so that the two partners actually want to have that sex. Did you specifically section off parents in this survey? I didn't, but I did ask about, you know, whether they had, you know, if they had kids and how, how old they were. I think I actually asked specifically like kids in the house. So I didn't pull that data out specifically, but I certainly could. It's there. I just need to do it. And you're also a sex therapist. So you have some experience just working with parents in general around ADHD and sex and having kids. Right. What are some of the common challenges for parents? that you see them facing and what are some of the ways those problems can be overcome? You know, the thing about kids is it just amplifies what's already there. You know, and kind of like we talked about that just in terms of workloads are greater when you have kids. But I think also there's sometimes the, how do I put this? The sort of like the righteousness maybe. Um, and I mean that in good and bad ways in the sense that, you know, sometimes people are willing to let something go if it's about them but they'll fight to the death if it's about their kid. So stuff like, okay, I don't care, like I'll deal with it if you leave, leave me waiting, but if you leave our kid waiting at school or at the soccer field, I'm gonna have a problem with that. 
on the one hand, okay, fine, maybe that's how it should be, you know, especially if your kids are younger, like then adults should be stepping in to protect them. But it can also kind of go, it can amplify things that don't need to be amplified, where people will really kind of take one to the mat that maybe doesn't need to be. And it can become this really big sort of a, a battle, especially when the two parents have different parenting styles, which may or may, it may be one of those situations where frankly, neither one of them is right. They're just different. Okay. And I think that that's an important thing is really separate out. Like what are the things that really are putting our kids at risk or having a negative impact on them? And what's the stuff that is just, just kind of different, you know? I imagine also that it, I mean, kids wear you down. They take up a lot of energy. Just yeah. even if there isn't a significant difficulty in the relationship, if the relationship is kind of sailing smoothly, kids are still going to be an impediment on with regard to time and energy. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I know as I get older, I'm like, oh, that's why kids play soccer. Like, because then you take them to the soccer field and you go home. <laughs> <laughs> you have 45 minutes of time together, even if all you're doing is talking and getting the dishes done. Right. It doesn't have to be sex. But those clubs are a way to get some time together when you otherwise can't. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. Like, there's a lot of research out there that shows that sexual satisfaction, relationship satisfaction drops upon the birth of the first child. You know, like, it gets better. But you know, especially in those sort of like all hands on deck early years, man, like you're just hanging on. It's easy for that connection with your spouse to be the first thing that goes. So I think it's, you know, a challenge really to keep that connection. And I think it's important to really kind of prioritize. I mean, this is easy to say, but, you know, when there are a few minutes to not just like grab your phone and start scrolling Facebook, but to turn towards your partner and check in with them or to grab little bits of time to spend that time together and not necessarily to do it, use it to like get things done. So, okay, fine. There's dirty dishes all over the kitchen that does need to be dealt with, but you know what? Maybe us spending some time together is important also. You know, this is the place where I think for the non-ADHD partner, it'll be easier to go to the cleaning things up and getting things done perhaps. Whereas the partner who has ADHD might be a bit better at saying like, no, no, no. What about you and me? And specifically in an ADHD relationship, there's that sensitivity to rejection that can come with ADHD. Yeah. And I can see a scenario where either partner, if one of them is turning to do the dishes and the other one is like, hey, let's talk, then the one who says, hey, let's talk might feel rejected. Yeah. Or the one who's turning to do the dishes and is like, come help me do the dishes. And the other one is like, hey, let's talk. They might feel rejected because you're not going to do the dishes. Yeah. Did you find anything around that rejection sensitive stuff in the surveys? You know, I didn't ask about it specifically, but, but I think you're absolutely right in terms of the picture that you paint, that it really does go both ways. And the thing about it is, you know, like, let's be honest, these are both valid agendas, you know, doing the dishes spending some time together, whether it's talking or having sex or whatever, those are both important. Like those are both good goals that need to be addressed. You know, as for which of them is best to address at this moment, you know, I don't know. Like that's, that's kind of debatable or it's up for discussion. And I think the important thing is that there's something of a balance between the two, that it doesn't feel like one partner tends to be the one to get their way and the other one doesn't. 
and hiding underneath all of this that I just want to make sure we bring to the surface is that talking about sex, requesting to have sex, there's a ton of vulnerability hiding inside of how we interact with sex in relationship. Yeah. And so either couple is likely to be feeling that that vulnerability and sensitivity around whatever's going on. And we should be respectful of that with our spouse or, or partner. Absolutely. You know, especially if things are a little bit fraught between you, especially if there have been rejections before that, you know, it's not just about, I was hoping to have fun and now I can't, you know, as in like, oh, I was hoping to watch this movie and it's not loading. But yeah, it's that like, I am putting myself out there and I might get rejected. And, and that's true, you might. But at the same time, if you don't take the chance, then nothing happens. And if there's too much rejection going on, then maybe there needs to be a conversation about why. Mm-hmm. You know, what else is going on here? What's below the surface? You know, what do we need to address so that we are doing better with each other? Right. If all you're looking for is the fun side of sex, that's where masturbation and porn live, right? Like that's, yeah. that's a significant part of the book we, that we haven't even gotten to. If you're bidding to your partner for sex, there's a level of emotional connection and, and caring that you're looking for as well. Absolutely. And, you know, masturbation is and porn are almost always easier than doing something with somebody else. I mean, look, everybody has to figure out for themselves and with their partner where masturbation and porn fit into their sex life, if anywhere. But my feeling personally, not that I get to vote on your relationship, but, <laughs> you know, my feeling is if it's something of interest, it can be a way to kind of balance out those desire discrepancies. Right. You know, that that way the higher desire partner takes care of themselves sometimes and then at other times they do stuff together. But frankly, even for the lower desire partner that, you know, sometimes taking care of things on their own actually increases their interest in doing things together. You know, that there are some people where if sort of left untouched, sex just sort of slides back, you know, into the recesses. Whereas if it's a bit more front and center by doing things together and on their own, it remains more front and center. I've had a a couple of clients in in both cases, younger men, um, who used masturbation as both an like sort of like an anxiety management tool and also a tool to start. Mm -hmm. Is that anywhere in the survey or is is that, am I onto something here? My guys with ADHD, well, Across the board, men and women with ADHD looked at more porn, felt more positive about it, felt more positive about their partner's porn use, and masturbated more often than those without. And, you know, there are definitely some folks who are doing quite a bit of that. So, you know, I think it absolutely, I mean, I I believe both of those things that you said, that it's about anxiety management and it's a way to sort of kickstart their brain. And I've certainly had other people you know, in my office, describe that. So, you know, my feeling on it is it's kind of like if it ain't a problem, it ain't a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, now you have to decide for yourself if it's a problem or you need to kind of work it through with your partner just so it's not a secret because then if you're sneaking it, then that is a problem, whether it's porn or, I don't know, watching Desperate Housewives or some you know, whatever. So yeah, so I think it's just a matter of kind of using it in the right sort of way. I think the challenge perhaps for folks with ADHD would be that it's just like a time management problem. You know, a little bit of porn becomes, you know, too long, which would be a problem regardless of what you're doing. You know, if you're playing Candy Crush or watching porn, 
or even, you know, reading books to blind kids with cancer, you know, if you're spending too long on it and other things are suffering, then that's a time management problem. That's not a porn problem. Right. Awesome. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience? So my ending essential is this. If your relationship matters to you, your sex life should matter to you. And if either of them, if both of them matter to you, then managing ADHD well should matter to you as well. And that, you know, the folks who are the happiest in bed and out are the ones who work well as a team. They're respectful, they're considerate, they're willing to pitch in, and they can also respectfully ask for what they themselves need. Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at ADHDessentials.com. And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. 10% better is all you need.